Happy Easter, everyone. It's really wonderful to be with you to celebrate this day with you again at the SF Opera House. Today, I would like to talk with you about the resurrection of Jesus, but from a slightly different angle. I want to talk about something the Apostle Paul, an early follower of Jesus, and quite arguably one of the most influential people in world history, what he had to say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's found in the letter wrote, written to the church in Philippi around 60 AD. In your Bibles, um, the letter is called Philippians. It will also be on the screen behind me. If you want to turn your Bibles there, you can, or it will be on the screen behind me. I'll read it, and then I will pray for us. Philippians 3, 4 through 11, Paul says this. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word, let me pray. Lord, I ask, um, as in Keiichi prayed at the very beginning, that you would, and every single person here, no matter where they're at in their life with you or, their, or their, even their, their, their skepticism toward uh, the New Testament or Easter, or if we just completely uh, embraced it and you're transforming us even now, I pray for all of us that we would sense uh, and feel a sense of your presence with us, that you would um, order my thoughts um, take care of my voice, and give us um, ears to hear what your spirit would want to say to us on this Easter. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> amen. What this text is saying is that Paul found Jesus so compelling that he literally threw away his old life. Everything that he had built his life upon up to that point in his early 30s, he got rid of it all and followed Jesus. And not just that, but he made it his life aim to know this Jesus and the power of his resurrection. What would make someone do that? Why did Paul find Christ so compelling? To understand that, we first have to look at Paul's early life, which he explains in some detail here. In verses 4 through 6, Paul starts to reflect a little bit about his old life before coming to know Christ, his life before he met Jesus. And he starts boasting a little bit. He actually starts boasting a lot bit. He says, if you think you have reason to be confident in your accomplishments and what you've done with your life or your devotion to a religion, your pedigree or your law degree, if you think you have reason to brag, to boast, to stunt, to throw shade, I have more. <laughs> I've always seen Paul as actually the first person to do the rap boast. He was like, the first Ice Cube or Jay-Z, even before Drake, like all of that. He had, I had in my sermon some really great rap boast lines for right now, but I realized not a single one of them were actually appropriate for Easter, so I removed them all. 
But Paul really did have it all. He had the pedigree, he had the education, he had the law degree, he had the political power, he had it all. I mean, just look at his list, starting in verse 5. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. I don't know what rapper would boast about their own circumcision, but that's how OG Paul was. That's how he starts. (laughs) He says, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of Jacob's favorite sons. And because the tribe had later remained faithful to the house of David, Paul is saying, I'm from the best tribe. He's, I'm from the people of Israel and I'm from the best tribe of Israel. Not only that, but he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he was born of pure Hebrew stock. And this can also mean he spoke Hebrew, which very few Jews at that time spoke. Meaning not only am I a pure Hebrew, I speak the pure language. According to the law, he had a law degree as a Pharisee. Not only did Paul study under one of the most famous rabbis of his day, a doctor of Jewish law, Paul being a Pharisee himself was an expert in the law and a strict observer of the law. As for zeal, he hunted and hurt Christians. Paul's zeal for the law was evidenced by the fact that he hunted down Christians who claimed the Messiah had come in Jesus of Nazareth and who made the kingdom of God available to everyone. And Paul was not having that. That's not kosher. That's not true. That's not what happened. And so he persecuted the church. According to righteousness based on the law, Paul said he's faultless. According to Paul, take any outward observance of the law any code, any ritual, any command, and he did all of those things perfectly. In the first century, this is the profile of someone who had it all. All the privileges that birth can afford, all the education, all the power, all the influence. Not only that, he had all the self-discipline to live the life he wanted to live. Very few people can say that. He had all the discipline to live how he he wanted to live was faultless. And he says, he can do that. I actually live faultless life. The only thing that Paul didn't have going for him was history tells us that Paul was ugly. Like very historically ugly. Like that's what people write about him. That's the only thing he didn't have going for him. But that doesn't matter as much in his time before Instagram. So you can say he was a person in his prime. He had it all. It's been said that people change their perspective in life when one of two things happen to them. Either they hit rock bottom or they find a more compelling vision for a better future. Author David Brooks in his new book that just came out this last week called The Second Mountain says that people have two mountains they climb in life. The first mountain are about the goals our culture puts forth. Things like living life to be successful, being well thought of, getting invited to the right social circles, experiencing personal happiness. It's all the normal stuff. A nice home, a nice family, nice vacations, nice sex, good food, good friends, so on. That's the first mountain people climb. And he says there's nothing wrong with that mountain. Everyone climbs it. Everyone tries to go up that mountain. He says, typically for people, something happens once they get to the top or towards the top of their first mountain. Some people get to the top of that first mountain, they taste success, experience some happiness in their life, and they find it horribly unsatisfying. They wonder, is this all there is? This feeling is described really well 
by the late American novelist David Foster Wallace when he was being interviewed on Salon.com about his book, Infinite Jest, which was his attempt at writing a sad book about living in America. And so when asked about this book when he was on a book tour in 96, he says this on Salon.com. He says, there's something particularly sad about it, living in America. Something that doesn't have very much to do with physical circumstances or the economy or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. It's more like a stomach level, stomach, stomach level sadness. I see it in myself and my friends in different ways. It manifests itself as a kind of lostness. The sadness that the book is about, Infinite Jest, and that I was going through was a real America type of sadness. I was white, upper middle class, obscenely well-educated, had way more career sex success than I could have legitimately hoped for, and I was sort of adrift. A lot of my friends were the same way. Some of them were deeply into drugs. Others were unbelievable workaholics. Some were going to single bars every night. You can see it played out in 20 different ways, but it's the same thing. What DFW describes as the unsatisfied feeling of being privileged, educated, having tasted some success, he says what it feels like is a stomach-level sadness. It's not that your bank account's empty. It's not like, you're, you're, like no one's liking your stuff that you're posting. It's not that you don't have dates lined up. It's not any of that stuff, but it's a different sadness. It's like a stomach-level sadness that manifests itself in a kind of lostness. I've been surprised how there's been a lot written lately about how many people are very successful in their careers right now, especially in the Bay Area, but are completely miserable. There was a great article in, about this in The Atlantic a couple weeks ago called Workism is Making Americans Miserable. There was another one just this last week in the New York Times called Wealthy, Successful, and Miserable. And the premise of that article in the New York Times is that you can go to the right school, you can get the right degree that offers you all the right connections to the right job that will have you set for the life you think you wanted, and you can get it all, but you realize it's not what you wanted and you're miserable. But you can't really do anything about it. You can't lose it all now. There's too much at stake. There's too much college debt. There's too much sewn into the career path. There's too much tied up in your lifestyle. And so you keep moving forward. You keep working, traveling, experiencing, exploring. The Danish novelist uh, Matthias Dalsgaard calls this type of person the insecure overachiever. He says, such a person must have no stable or solid foundation to build upon, and yet nonetheless tries to build his way out of his problem. It's an impossible situation you can't compensate for having a foundation made of quicksand by building a new story on top. But this person takes no notice and hopes that the problem down in the foundation won't be found out if only the construction work on top keeps going. Keep traveling, keep experiencing, keep making money, keep going out. I want to ignore the fact that underneath it all, there's a stomach level sadness. And of course, this story is as old as stories. The famous 19th century pastor from Chicago, Dwight L. Moody, once said, our greatest fear should not be failure, but succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that successful people can be lost too. And I think it's a message San Franciscans need to hear. 
People in this room right now, upwardly mobile, free thinking, successful people in the city need to hear this. Successful people can be lost too. And with a lostness of the worst kind. People with good health and good teeth and good careers. People who went to the right schools and were born into just the right kind of privilege and who followed the way that society says is the right way to live. These people, you can be lost too. And maybe you think, I'm not allowed to be lost. I'm too privileged, too educated, too highly paid, too intelligent, too self-sufficient to be lost. Other people get lost. People that we see driving into the opera house are lost, not me. And maybe for some of you, this comes at you as good news. Wait, are you saying that it's okay for me to be lost? Jesus tells a parable about lost things. It's a triptych story, story told in threes. He tells the first story of a lost sheep, and then a lost coin, and then a lost son. But the story of the lost son has a twist. It's not a story of a lost son, but it's a story of lost sons, too. There are two sons in the story that Jesus tells. The younger of the two sons asks to take all of his part of his inheritance from his father and leave. Another way of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead right now, and I want you to give me what's mine, and I want to leave you. And so the dad sells off half of the farm, half of the assets, liquidates half, and gives the son his inheritance. And the son goes out and he wastes it. He parties it. He smokes it. He sleeps it away. See, a lot of us can relate to this person. Promiscuous, I think the word is. But then the story goes, the son wakes up one day after burning every bridge addicts burn, and he just can't take the scent of his own filth anymore, and he decides to go home. He decides to beg his dad to just let him work for him so he can sleep in the pool house. But his dad, when he sees him coming home, we find out that he's actually been waiting for his son. And when he sees him a long way off, he goes after him. He runs. And he tackles him. And he kisses him. It's party time. My son was lost. And now he's found. And you think that's the end of the story. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Oh, yay. He's found. But Jesus, among other things, is a masterful storyteller. And this one has like an M. Night Shyamalan sort of twist at the end. Because we're introduced into, to another son, an older one. And when he comes out from working that day, he sees a party happening. And he's get, he gets pissed. And he calls his first dad. And his dad comes out of the party. And he's like, Dad, what's going on? He says, your brother who was lost is found. He's home. Let's party. But the brother doesn't buy it. The older brother does not buy it. He doesn't go into the party. See, the older brother is actually the sensible one in the family. The one who's, who, ha, who probably has like an MFT, the one who is emotionally mature and stable. He's a successful one. And he speaks the truth. He represents the side of sensibility. Dad, how do we know he's not going to relapse? How do you know, Dad, as you wipe the tears from your face that Mr. Powdernose over there has actually changed? How do we know he's not just going to do it all over again? And how do you know, Dad, that you're not ruining him with your enablement right now? We need boundaries, Dad. You need boundaries, Dad. That's, that's the side of the sensible one. Also, 
When did I ever get a feast for staying put and doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing all along? This is not fair. So the question becomes, maybe the younger brother is not the only person lost in the story. See, one of the most compelling things about Jesus' earthly ministry is that broken, marginalized, oppressed people aroused in Jesus a particular tenderness. People with brokenness of all varieties, Jesus was so madly attracted to them. People whose bodies and minds didn't work properly. People who kept ruining their lives with bad choices. People born in ways that made them outsiders. People who, in one way or another, didn't live up to the purity rules, whether it was their doing or not. Jesus went after these sort of people, always found time for them, would heal their diseases, would restore them to purity, would dignify their existence. These marginalized people were considered lost by everyone in society, even themselves. And Jesus came to seek and save the lost. But what about those lost people who didn't think they were lost? See, the way Jesus tells the story is that the older brother is lost too. The older successful brother has done it all. He has everything right. You can tell by his reaction to the party, even though he lives the right life, that he's miserable, that he's bitter, that he's alone, that he's woefully unsatisfied. And the parable ends with one son found and another successful son lost. And the twist inside of the twist is that Jesus is actually telling the story to successful Pharisees. Look at the preface to the parable, Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees... And the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So what Jesus is saying is that successful people can be lost too. And a lostness of the most dangerous kind. A kind of lostness that they think privilege can fix. A kind of lostness that they think their annual salary can fix. A kind of lostness that they think their position in life can fix or if not fix, at least keep them marginally functional to hope that the problem down in the foundation won't be found out if only the construction work on top keeps going. And I tell you all this because this is exactly where Paul was before he met Jesus. He was even a Pharisee to whom this parable is told to. Paul was lost, but here's the thing. It didn't look like he was lost. It looked like he had it all in life. It didn't look like he was lost because of his success. And it was his success that actually kept him from thinking he needed Jesus. So stack your profile and the reason why you think you don't need Jesus. And Paul would say, like an East Coast rapper, I'm better than you. And you're a sucker MC. Like, I'm way better than you. But look at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me. Whatever the things that brought me gains in life, everything that brought me success in life, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Actually, more than that, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, 
my Lord. Christ is worth so much more than everything and all the success that I chalked up in life so far. For whose sake I've lost all things. And I consider them garbage, rubbish. That word can also mean feces. That word in Greek is kind of a slang cuss word. Paul's saying, I consider them all trash that I may gain Christ. Paul here is talking about profits and losses. It's a language of economics and currency. Paul thought he had all the right currency. He was doing the right kind of math. When he added up all the profits of his life, he found it was secure and successful and influential. But then he was faced with something. He was wrong. But what do you do when you're successful, secure, have a nice and good enough life, when you're faced with the reality that what you've been building your life on is wrong? And however you come to that conclusion, it doesn't matter. Either it's a loss or a failure or just realizing that your life is not satisfying. What do you do when faced with the reality that your life and what you've built it upon is wrong? Jesus had a run-in with a, a man, a young man who was really successful. He's called the rich young ruler in the Gospels. He had it all, very, very rich, very powerful, very influential. <clears throat> And he goes to Jesus and says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What do I have to do? I've done it all. And Jesus names a few things. He's like, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. And so finally Jesus says, you have to give everything, everything you have up, sell it all, give it to the poor and follow me. And the rich young ruler walked away. Here's the truth. It's one of the hardest things in the world to be confronted with new information and to put to death your previous conceptions of life. It is so hard. I mean, we know how to do that in our work. We call it a pivot, right? In the startup world of Silicon Valley, we just call it pivoting. New information comes at us about the usefulness of our startup or our company or whatever, and we realize that we need to let go of our original idea, how our, we thought our company was going and, and what we built, and we turn it and we pivot into something new. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, that's awesome, you pivoted. But it seems easier to do with investors' money than with our own lives. When we're confronted with new information about our lives, but our lives are built on a certain way, we were going in a certain path in our lives, and we're faced with new information, it feels really hard to pivot with our own lives. The language that Paul uses in his great pivot is the resurrection language. Philippians 3.10, he says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection. The reason why Paul used resurrection language is because no other language would suffice. Because how do successful people who are lost get saved? And there's only one answer. And it's a, it's a difficult answer. And the answer is this. You have to die. The answer is this. They have to give it all up. The answer is this. You have to count, consider it a loss and you have to pivot in your life and you trust Christ to bring about new life. And the only language that works here is the resurrection language. And the reason why the only, only the language works is the resurrection because you have to die to the way you did things. You die to the way that you thought about success. You die to the way that you thought you were building an identity. You have to die to the way that you found meaning. You die 
And once you die, you hope, you trust in Christ to bring about a resurrection. What the resurrection is, is that Jesus died. He took upon himself every single hateful, vile, disgusting thing that humanity can throw at him. He took it all, absorbed it all, and ultimately died. And today on Easter, we celebrate the resurrection because the grave could not hold him. Death could not hold him. And he rose again. He absorbed all of our hate, all the ways that we, we try to build a life and success and all of that stuff. He took it all in and then he comes back to life. And then he says to us, this is the way life goes. You die and you're reborn. And I'm not just talking about unto salvation. I'm not just talking about if you're not a Christian to trust in Christ and give up your old life and trust in, uh, to trust in Christ and give up your old life and become a, a born again person. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about for every single Christian, the way of Jesus is dying and being reborn, dying and being reborn over and over and over and over again. It is the way we live now. This is the way Paul says, I live my life. Whatever it is, whatever the things that I think I would, I would hold on to and grasp, I die to those things and I let Christ raise it from the dead over and over and over again until ultimately one day you will be buried. And Paul says, and on that day, I'm hoping for a resurrection of my body. Ultimately one day, when we're buried in the ground, Christ will raise our body up because we lived this sort of life. We've lived this sort of life of being buried over and over and over again and Christ raising our life up over and over and over again. People, <clears throat> the most uh, common question I get asked before Easter every year is, are you nervous? My friend here just asked me that just a second ago as well. Are you nervous standing up in front of all those people and, um, and talking? And, uh, and I always say, no, I don't necessarily get nervous. I honestly, the emotion I feel the most is frustrated because I can never say what I want to say the way I want to say it. I, it's so hard to tell a giant group of people in the middle of San Francisco that Christ is everything. He's worth everything. He takes our worst brokenness or our best attempts at success and he allows us to bury them, to destroy them, to kill them and then he resurrects new life. And he does that over and over and over again. And the things that you think are your, you've built an identity around that is not Christ, either one day those things will burn up and they'll be shown as nothing or today, now, you consider them trash and you set fire to them yourself and you watch Christ raise those things up from the dead over and over and over again. There is another famous person, but he was not famous for being religious like Paul was. He was famous for being irreligious. His name, we call him now St. Augustine. St. Augustine, when he was young, went away to college, did what typical college people do when they go away. He left his mother's religion, his mother's faith, and he went and he partied and he drank and he slept around. You probably know the story because we live this story. But later in life, he found Christ. Or actually, like Paul, Christ found him. And the way he writes in his journal about 
Coming to know the love of God, coming to know the beauty of Christ is like this. He says, late have I loved you. A beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. Lo, you were within, but I was outside. Seeking there for you, one of my favorite lines, and upon the shapely things you have made, I rushed headlong, misshapen. What Augustine is saying is that all the beautiful things that you've made, all the sensuality you've made in this world, all the beauty you've made in this world, I, all the things that you've shaped, I rushed into those things, misshapen myself, trying to find in those things meaning, trying to find in those things purpose, trying to find in those things success. You were with me, but I was not with you. They held me back far from you, those things which would have no being were they not in you. You called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I gasped and now I pant for you. I tasted you and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me and I burned for your peace. This is poetically what Paul is saying, is that there was a moment where he met Christ. There was a moment where he met the beauty that is Christ, the surpassing worth that is Christ. Everything is Christ. And at that moment, he gave up everything. His status as a Pharisee, his place in society, he gave it all up and he said, I counted all as lost and I was glad to because of the worth of following Jesus. Jesus is that beautiful. The resurrection is that powerful that it can take people who give up the, 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 most, the most important places in life for Christ and say, I want to rethink how I think about success and I want to rethink how I think about salvation. I want to rethink, I want to rethink it all under Christ. The power of the resurrection to take that life that does that and allow it to die and then revive it back to life again, a new life, an eternal life, is remarkable. I get to see it over and over again in my line of work. And what I hope, that the Spirit of God begins to impress the promise of this truth into your heart right now. Would you stand with me as we pray?